Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that the Bible isn't simply a book of principles. It's that and more. It's a book about people and their lives and their sorrows and their supplications and their surrender. And Lord, we see in their life, our life, our sorrow, our supplication, and our surrender. And Lord, we pray that as we open up this book and as we read its stories, that Lord, we would draw close to you. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his life and his death and his resurrection. That all of history was a prelude to the coming of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And Lord, we know everything, everything, everything right now points us to the coming of Jesus. Lord, we know that every event, every person that we meet and everything that we do moves us a little closer to Jesus or away from Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would have the wisdom to be able to tell the difference between those two. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man of Ramataim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Alehu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite, and he had two wives, one too many, I, it doesn't say that in the text, and he had two wives, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you ask of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. 
Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Shemuel or Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took with him, uh, took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah, a flower, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord, which granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. The book of Samuel is a book about transition. It's the ultimate book of in-between. In between the time of the judges and the time of a monarchy, the first part of the book of Samuel tells the story of the last judge, Samuel. And then it begins in chapter 13 with the first king. So the two Broad themes of the book are the last judge and the first king. And because it's a book about transition, it has meaning in every age and in every generation. Because we're all in transition. The universe is going in a particular direction. The world is going in a particular direction. The United States of America is going in a particular direction. And each and every individual is going in a particular direction. We go from youth to young adulthood to maturity to seniority. We're all about change. We're all about transition. Some of us are transcend are transitioning from obedience to disobedience. That's bad. Some of us are transitioning from disobedience to obedience. That's good. And clearly, in a world of transition, there's uncertainty and sometimes there's doubt. Edward Gibbon, the author of The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, wrote, Man writes histories. Goodness is silent. History is indeed little more than the register of the crimes and the follies and the misfortunes of mankind. That's kind of a jaded perspective. Gibbon wrote in The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire in 1788, shortly after the United States won its freedom, in 1788, our Constitution was barely two years old, or a year old. Gibbon wrote five reasons why civilizations wither and die. Number one, an undermining of the dignity and the sanctity of the home, which is the basis for human society. Number two, higher and higher taxes, spending public money for free bread, circuses, or to switch to digital TV. No, it didn't. he didn't write that. There was no digital TV. Number three, a mad craze for pleasure, with pastimes becoming every year more exciting more brutal, more immoral. Number four, building great armaments, amassing huge uh, military establishment, although the real enemy is within. It's the decay of individual responsibility. And number five, 
the corruption, decay, and elimination of religion. Faith fading into mere form, losing touch with life, and losing its power to guide people. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Dr. A.T. Pearson, preacher and missionary, wrote, History really is his story. Truly, all of human history points to, leads up to the person of Jesus. Now, remember that the book of Judges describes a time when there was no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The reoccurring theme found in the Bible and certainly in the book of Samuel are nations may change, leaders may change, but the plan of God and the purpose of God remains the same. And it continues to move forward. In the time of the judges, like I said, it was a time of uncertainty. Samuel is the last great judge. Israel is not so much a united country as a united group descended from one man, Jacob. They're a group of tribes governed by judges who are appointed by God. There's no permanent army. There's no permanent military leaders. The leaders from the different tribes would volunteer when the tribal groups and the family groups were threatened. So in the first three chapters of 1 Samuel, it introduces us to three main characters. A godly mother named Hannah, a careless father named Eli, and a devoted son named Samuel. The book of 1 Chronicles, excuse me, the, the book of 1 Samuel chronicles the last judge, verses 1 through 12, the first king, chapters 13 through 31, the book begins with Samuel gaining the public trust. And then it continues with the disillusionment of Saul and the new king. Another transition. So many people find themselves even in that circumstance where you go from excitement to depression. From joy to emptiness. From thinking all of the great things about God and Jesus and the Bible and heaven and what God has for you to the reality of living in the world in which we live. We find the book begins with Samuel gaining the public trust and then Saul losing the public trust. We've also, <coughs> excuse me, find Jesus in the book of 1 Samuel. Because Samuel himself is typified as a prophet and a priest and a judge. And later in the book of Samuel, we're going to be introduced to David, who becomes a type and a picture of his more famous son, a shepherd who is king, who is born in Bethlehem. And so the people in Israel were in big trouble. They lacked godly leadership. The priesthood was defiled. There was little revelation. It was limited to prophetic messages coming from the Lord. As a matter of fact, if we take it just a sneak peek in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And there was no widespread revelation. In other words... People really weren't hearing from God. And when they had the word of God, the law of God, the books of Moses, the writings went largely ignored. So what do you do in a world where there's godless leadership, where the priesthood is defiled and the people who have the Bible ignore it? It's a recipe for disaster. You know what I've learned as I read the Bible? Over and over again, God seems to solve the problems of the planet Earth by sending a baby. You know, someone once said that a baby is God's vote of confidence. 
Someone said that babies are God's way of saying, I know what you need. I care about you. And I'm willing to work on your behalf. And when a baby comes, hope comes. Babies are arrows into the future, and their conception and birth are linked to the miracle power of God. And the Lord God sometimes selects barren women to become pictures of hope. That's what we see in the Bible. Sarah, the Lord gives Isaac, Jacob, and Esau to Rebekah, Joseph to Rachel. And during this time of uncertainty, wickedness, of doubt and despair, the book of Samuel begins by giving a baby. But it's interesting. When you read the very first verse, now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah. It begins with a man, but clearly the chapter continues with a woman and ends with a child. And that becomes a principle even as you're reading the Bible. The Bible seems to begin with the least important and moves to the more important. And that's exactly what you're going to see here. Samuel's father... Uh, appears to have been a priest, even though he lived in the region of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was a region in the, the, the land of Israel, and it was the inheritance that was given to one of the children of Joseph. Remember, Joseph had two children, Manasseh and Ephraim. And we know that Elkanah was a priest because of the genealogy in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. And here we have the genealogy of Elkanah or Elkanah. And it's only because he is the father of the last judge and the prophet of God. You'll notice that nobody cares about your genealogy until you do something significant. Nobody looks up Gino Geraci's genealogy. They look up Barack Obama. They look up Abraham Lincoln. They look up famous people. And the more famous you are, the more important your genealogy becomes. And he was from a family, the family of Levi. In a particular group of that family called the Kohathites, they were a branch of, of, of Levi. And remember, this becomes important because he is both judge and, in a very real sense, Samuel is a priest. And Ramathaim, Zophim, is another name for Ramah. Now, the town is about five miles north of Jerusalem. And for those of you who are fortunate enough to go to Israel with us, we go near there. This is on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And Ramah was not one of the priestly cities originally assigned to the tribe of Levi, but for some reason a branch of the tribe moves into the hill country of Ephraim and they set up camp there. Now remember, it's about 1025 B.C. It's during the time of the judges. This is obviously before Saul, before um, David. This is a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. The temple hasn't been built in the city. And in verse 2 it says, And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And all of a sudden, the tragedy jumps out at you. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, we know in the Bible that the law allowed under certain circumstances for more than one wife. It's spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. But was that God's plan and was that God's pattern? Was polygamy and bigamy ever a part of God's plan? And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, the first time we're introduced to a man who has multiple wives in the book of Genesis, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. God's plan and pattern for the family was one man and one woman. That's why the Bible says, Therefore, a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman, and the two shall become... Yeah, which one? Which one are we going to be? Him or me? No, that's actually not what the Bible means by becoming one. You see, 
even though polygamy is only practiced outside of the United States or if Utah and parts of Colorado and Arizona are sort of broken away from the United States, polygamy still exists. But what people have, have tried to suggest is that that's a good thing and it's a godly thing. But the Bible says that Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of men's hearts in Matthew 19:18. It wasn't uncommon for a man to take a second wife when the when the first wife couldn't bear children and they would have to raise up if you will seed to the man so that they could continue the inheritance. And so one of the questions that people don't typically ask is why didn't Elkanah wait on the Lord? Why didn't he wait on the Lord? And why didn't he trust the Lord? But he doesn't wait on the Lord, and he doesn't trust the Lord, and he takes a second wife because Hannah is unable to bear children. And for the people who argue that polygamy is a good thing, again, the Bible over and over again represents it as being a bad thing. Remember when Abraham took Hagar, good thing or bad thing? It's a very bad thing. And when Jacob winds up with four wives... Good thing or a bad thing? It really creates tension and drama. By the way, the name Hannah means grace. Isn't that beautiful? Or the woman of grace. And the fact that Penina had children meant, at least on the surface, that the problem seemed to lie with Hannah. It wasn't the husband's inability to produce children. So how is it that a woman with Penina's cruel disposition could have children, but Hannah couldn't? Why did the Lord shut up her womb? What was the reason that she was going to suffer? And it begs the question, why does things happen? Why do people suffer? Why do people experience heartache and headache? and pain, and sorrow, whatever the reason, God was going to use the time of barrenness to mold her character and to motivate her faith because God's plan was to take a barren woman and make that barren womb a place of blessing. And sometimes, the shortest distance between two points isn't the short way. It's the long way. Because God is molding and shaping and directing. God's cultivating a character. God is going to create a circumstance where a woman's life is going to be profoundly changed and open to the plan and the purpose of God. Karen Lee Thorpe in her book, The Story of Stories, transitions Ruth to 1 Samuel this way. She writes, about the time of Ruth and Boaz, we're happily raising Obed. Obed is going to give birth to a, a, a person named Jesse, and Jesse's going to give birth to a young man named David. About the time that Ruth and Boaz are raising Obed, another wife was suffering the curse of barrenness less than 30 miles north. Her husband's other wife teased her to the point that Hannah was praying desperately for a baby. And when Yahweh finally gave her a son, she was so grateful that she dedicated him to serve in the tabernacle. As soon as he was about three years old, she gave him into the care of Eli, the priest who was in charge, unquote. Hannah, remember what I said, grew up in a world where society had sunk to the lowest depths. For those of you who have read the book of Judges, you'll remember over and over again, there's a reoccurring theme. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was rampant lawlessness. There was abuse. There was violence. There was a permissive lifestyle. There was gang rape, homosexuality, spousal abuse, child abuse, murder, widespread polygamy, greed, injustice, idolatry, civil war. This is a world of absolute chaos. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, you remember that there's one particular point where a priest 
has a concubine. She is sexually assaulted. She's gang raped. And the priest cuts her into 12 pieces and sends the various parts of her body to the, to, to the tribes of Israel. Have you ever read that and thought, that's sick. That is sick. That is wicked. That is perverse. That is wrong. They don't even do that on CSI. So you can imagine when I get asked that question, why is that in the Bible? The only answer I can come up with is, it's meant to shock you. It's meant to disturb you. It's meant to remind you of the wickedness and the perversity that human beings are capable of sinking to left unchecked. That's the world that Hannah is living in. And as she's living in that world, she wants to serve the Lord. By the way, in a very real sense, Samuel is born to an imperfect family. It's an imperfect family that is struggling to honor the Lord and serve the Lord. But clearly the carnality is present because Elkanah doesn't really trust the Lord, at least at that point. Another woman enters the picture and it becomes an opportunity of jealousy and provocation. In our culture, we don't have polygamy so much as we have what I call serial monogamy. Divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage. By the way, does that put a strain on families and children? And in verse 3, it says, This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the book of 1 Samuel, I would encourage you to read ahead. When it says, this man, Elkanah, went up from his city, the city is Rapha. He's going to worship and sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh. The tabernacle and the ark were located in Shiloh at this time. The, the tabernacle is, remember, that portable tent that moved about in the wilderness before the establishment of the temple. The tabernacle is the place where people would go to meet God. And the ark, remember, that is that box that was covered with gold that had the two angels and their wings pointing in either direction. That becomes a type and a picture of the very presence of God. So the ark and the tabernacle are located in Shiloh. And Jewish men were required to observe three major festivals each year. And during the time of the judges, when so many people weren't honoring God, they were living lives of immorality and rebellion services weren't that well attended. Sometimes during times of great crisis and great pain and great need, the church is packed in a crisis. But people find themselves doing their own thing, going their own way, living their own lives. And the church dwindles. And the population dwindles. Only the hardcore Jesus freak seems to show up. But I find that this is very interesting. During the times when so many people weren't honoring God, were living lives of immorality and rebellion, this man is making an effort to honor God. And I think that the mention of Hophni and Phinehas um, goes to the issue of hypocrisy and inconsistency. For those of you, again, who are unfamiliar with the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to discover that Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are going to prove to be very wicked and very perverse. And so, because they're wicked and they're perverse, it's very, very difficult to, to, to understand. You, you have probably heard people say to you, I'm not going to church, it's just full of hypocrites. And then you rightly say, it, it could use one more. There's not a hypocritical moratorium going on. You're welcome. All hypocrites are welcome. 
You know, we live in a world where we see hypocrisy and duplicity on TV and on the radio. And it really does discourage people, doesn't it? Because they see greedy people and wicked people and perverse people. But Elkanah doesn't use their blatant hypocrisy as an excuse. In spite of the wicked leadership, in spite of the defiled priesthood, he continues at least to try to honor and serve the Lord. And look at what it says in verse 4. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions of Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. This is at a time when eating meat was very, very rare, and it was quite a treat. But you can imagine when they go to the sacrifice and they make the sacrifice, the moment that Elkanah makes the offering and he gives the portions to his wife and to her, to her sons and to her daughters, it wounds Hannah. It's a constant reminder that she has no children, and it's very difficult in our culture and society to explain the void inside of a woman's heart, particularly in a culture where motherhood defined you. It gave you your reason to exist, so to speak. But it says in verse 5, But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And therein lies again the idea that it's God who opens the womb and it's God who closes the womb. It's, it's God who gives children or, or refrains from giving children. And you can imagine for her, she views this as a personal failure. And look what it says. It provides an opportunity to provoke. In verse 6 it says, and her rival, also, and look what the Bible says. It refers to her as her rival provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. I want you to just imagine for a moment the thing that you want more than anything else. And you're unable to have it. You think it's going to be the most God-honoring, the most God-glorifying, the most majestic thing that you could possibly do. And because you're unable to do it, people make fun of you. And the sorrow and the anguish begins to flood her heart. And in verse 7 it says, And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her there. Therefore she wept and she did not eat during those times when it's supposed to be the holidays and the time of glorious celebration. She is hurt and she is angry and she is filled with sorrow and it's rooted deeply in her inability to conceive and have children and when it's worst is when she's at church. Can you imagine that the time of emptiness and the time of darkness and the time of sorrow becomes exacerbated by going to the place of worship. Can you imagine going to church and all it reminds you of is your failure and your disappointment? And that's exactly what was happening to her. There's few things sadder in the whole wide world than to go to church and feel empty and broken and hurt and alone and to get up out of your seat and walk out the door broken, empty, hurt, and alone. In verse 8 it says, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better than ten sons? Ladies, husbands can be horribly and terribly insensitive. Just ask my wife. 
we are capable of great insensitivity. We say things that we think are going to cheer up our wife. We say things that we think are going to take the pain and the anger and the edge off of it just a little bit. One of the realities of we know of what a godly woman Hannah is is because she doesn't answer her husband's question. You almost want to insert a verse that reads, you're kidding, right? As a matter of fact, not only are you not as good as, 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 as ten children, it could very well be that as he attempts to comfort her, the anguish, the sorrow, the pain only seems to deepen. She refuses to be consoled. She's gripped with the sorrow and brokenness and helplessness and hopelessness. Does does it even go so far as, as that she might even feel like she's been cursed by God? Perhaps. The emptiness. The sorrow. The pain. She sees this second wife as a constant reminder. Does she blame her husband? If she does, the, the text doesn't tell us. Did she believe that she had failed God? Does she believe that she's failed her husband? We're left with that impression. And that seems to be the case. That when we don't know what's going on, we know that it's theologically incorrect to blame God because we know that God is, is incapable of wickedness. He's incapable of doing what's wrong. He always does what's right. By very definition, the moment that God decides to do something, it becomes right in and of itself. So why has he closed her womb? Because there's a process of sorrow and brokenness that begins to take place in her heart and in her life. And sometimes God will take you through a process of sorrow and brokenness. Quite frankly, sometimes you won't get exactly what you want. But the God who loves you will give you exactly what you need. And in her sorrow, it's going to lead to a supplication. There are so many people living their lives in desperation and hurt, pain. I was listening today to my friend Ravi Zacharias, and he was talking about a campaign that he was doing in, in, in Poland. And there was a young lady who stood up to give her, her testimony to the crowd. And the, 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 the medical doctor who was serving as Ravi's interpreter said, you don't want to miss this. Because... When she's done speaking, there won't be a dry eye in the place. And this Polish girl gets up and she talks about her, her rebellion and her disobedience, how she hated God and she hated Christianity and, and she hated Christians. And she made a vow. She made a vow. She, she put her hands together and she said, I vow never, ever to put my hands together in prayer to God ever again. And she began to talk about what she would do with her life. A life apart from God. She was a gifted singer and she had been involved in the entertainment industry. But even that began to be empty and lonely. And finally she decided one day that she was going to end her life. And so she got on a, on a bicycle and she came to a railroad crossing. Where she thought that she would throw herself in front of the train tracks. And as the train was making its way, she wanted to time it perfectly so that she would hit the track and that the train would hit her and it would end her life. But as she was driving her bike, the front tire hit the rail and somehow in, an, in an, a remarkable way that defies explanation, her body was hurled so that only her hands were left on the track and the, the train went over her hands, severing both of her hands. And they took her to the hospital. 
to keep her from bleeding to death. And as they took her to the hospital, her grandmother showed up. And as her grandmother showed up, he, she began to read the Psalms at her bedside. And her heart began to soften. And her heart began to open to the Lord. And there was a lady in that crowd that very day who said, I was on that train. I was on the train that day. And when I heard that a young lady had, had been hit by the train, I began to pray for her. And as I prayed for her, I prayed that God would bring her to a place of brokenness and humility so that she would cry out to God. And God answered her prayer. And her grandmother showed up. And the vow that she made that she would never bring her hands together in prayer to God was forever fulfilled. But she discovered something that she didn't need to bring her hands together in prayer to God. That God was willing to forgive her and restore her. And she was at this meeting with two little rubber hands at the ends of her wrists. Sometimes sorrow and brokenness will bring us to that place where the failure, the disappointment, the disillusionment will run its course. You may have had a failed relationship. You may have had the inability to conceive or bear children or, or have a disease or an injury or the loss of a loved one. Just like Hannah suffered deeply, we live in a world where it's almost impossible to escape that kind of sorrow. And it's spoken of in the Bible in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 17. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 42, 6, Oh my God, my soul is cast down. Isaiah 49, 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me and my Lord has forgotten me. It's not unusual for the people of God to bring themselves to a place of emptiness and hurt. Paul talks about it in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 where he says that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. When you have no hope and you're without God in the world, it isn't to spotlight the emptiness and the pain and the sorrow and the deprivation. It's to bring you to a place of hope, of forgiveness and fulfillment. And so in verse 9 it says, So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. So we go from Hannah's sorrow to Hannah's supplication. Read it, verse 11. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will, gi will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. There's a couple of things that you need to note right from the start. She's filled with sorrow, isn't she? She's in a divided home, isn't she? But in the place of sorrow and in the place of a divided home, Hannah's determined to pray. Sometimes our sorrow is overwhelming and sometimes the persecution and the pain is overwhelming, but she's determined to pray. And she makes a vow and she calls on the Lord of hosts. And by the way, this is the first mention of that peculiar name of God in the Old Testament. It's Yahweh, the Tetragon. Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Shebo'at. This is the first time that the Lord is called the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. And the term stresses the sovereignty and the rule and the supremacy of God. It speaks of the Lord God's ability to control and be an ultimate leadership. 
And one of the strange things that you must not do as you read this verse is come to the conclusion that you can bargain with God or manipulate God. Is it a good idea to bargain with God and manipulate God? God, if you do this, I'll do that. Look, God, I'm going to make such a deal. A deal? Such a deal. Or as we would say in Italian, I'm going to make you an offer that you can refuse. It's very, very important that you understand something. Bargaining and dealing with God from impure motives and manipulative motives is condemned in the Bible. Remember, James writes and he says, you have not because you ask not. But sometimes when you ask, you do it in a, in a wrongful way so that you could consume it on your own lusts or your own desires. But clearly, we're left with this impression that whatever is motivating Hannah, it isn't impure. And as a matter of fact, she offers to return the child. Give me the child, and I will give the child back to you all the days of his life. And no razor shall come upon his head. It's the vow of a Nazarite. Remember, in the Old Testament, a particular person who was set aside for the plans and the purposes of God become a Nazarite. Samson was a Nazarite. But now Samuel is going to be dedicated to the Lord, and she makes the vow... And in verse 12 it says, And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. Husbands aren't the only ones in ministry who are insensitive. Sometimes pastors can be insensitive. They see you at church and they judge you. But they judge on the outside instead of the inside. And later on, we're going to discover that Eli has less than a stellar life himself. And the judgment of Eli speaks not so much of the circumstances of Hannah, but his own corrupt circumstances. And clearly, remember, this is a time when everybody is doing what's right in their own, own eyes. Is it possible that people showed up all the time at the, 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 at the tabernacle, drunk and sorrowful and all of that other stuff? Clearly, it is possible. And so, in verse 14, it says, So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put away the wine! But she's not drunk. Hannah answers with dignity, but with respect. No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Does God know the truth about what's going on in your heart? Is it okay to tell him the truth? Yeah. Is it okay to talk about the anguish and the sorrow and the pain and the failure and the disappointment? And the answer is yes. And in verse 17 it says, Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the Lord God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. i got to tell you something. Those words are going to change your life. Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of Him. You know, there's two kinds of peace. There's certainly the peace with God and there's the peace of God. Peace with God comes when we lay down our sin and we enter into a right relationship with God in Christ. The peace of God is that sense that floods your heart as you begin to understand something that you're not distant and estranged from God, but that you have a right relationship with God. And when you understand that God not only hears your prayers, but is willing to answer your prayers, there's a transformation that begins to take place. I know that before I became a Christian, I prayed not just hundreds, but thousands of prayers. 
first prayer that I know that God both heard and answered without a doubt was the day that I prayed a prayer, Lord, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Will you please forgive me in Jesus? Will you wash me and cleanse me? Will you forgive me and will you come into my heart and will you change me? I've asked lots and lots of prayers. But that was the first one that I ever prayed that God immediately showed up, immediately lifted the burden, immediately changed my life. And in verse 18 it says, And she said, Let your maid servant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way, and they, look what it says in verse 18, And her face was no longer sad. There was a transformation that began on the inside and continued on the outside. It's an amazing thought. Listen carefully. That the future of the nation rested in the godly prayers of a godly mother. How often has history turned on faithful women remaining faithful to the Lord? And you see, it's going to set in motion a series of circumstances that are quite literally not only going to change the nation of Israel from a time of judges to a time of a monarchy, but Samuel is going to have a profound effect, not just in his generation, but in every generation that follows. And look at verse 19. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife and the Lord remembered her. That's a euphemism, as you guys know. Elkanah knew his wife. The Lord remembers her. It becomes a delicate and profound way of saying that the circumstances are now going to be in place where we're The prayers are going to come true and the future is going to be set. She goes from sorrow to supplication to surrender. Look at verse 20. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. By the way, the Hebrew word sa'al means asked and Sama or Shama means heard. And so El is the word that we use for God. And so Samuel's name means heard of God or asked by, by God. Isn't it interesting? Grace prays. God hears. Isn't that an interesting thought? Grace prays, God hears, and all his life Samuel is going to be known as the answer to prayer. But he's also going to be known as the man of prayer. Can you imagine growing up and your name means God answered my prayers? Isn't that beautiful? Samuel isn't simply an answer to prayer. He becomes a man of prayer. And we're going to see that throughout the rest of his life. And then in verse 21 it says, Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. Jewish law, by the way, permitted a husband to make void or annul a wife's vow. If he disagreed with it. If you look in Numbers chapter 30, even though Hannah makes a vow and she says, Lord, if you do this for me, I'm going to do this for you. If for whatever reason her husband disagreed with the vow, he could annul the vow. But he doesn't. Husbands, that's a smart idea. When your wife makes a promise to God, It's my advice. Help her keep her promise to God. 
And in verse 22 it says, But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. Elkanah agrees with his wife's decision. He allows her to stay home. She weans the child. And it's also remarkable that a husband and a father, again, he agrees to be separated from his son for most of their, their lives. And by the way, a firstborn had to be redeemed by sacrifice. And you can find that in Exodus chapter 13, verses 11 through 13. And the couples were giving their son a sacrifice to the Lord. So Samuel, a Levite, is also going to be a Nazarite. He's also going to be a prophet. He's also going to be a judge. And as he faithfully serves the Lord, the world is going to be different. By the way, mothers would usually wean their children at about the age three. And so you can imagine this mother teaching her son to honor God and to obey the Lord. But what's interesting is Samuel doesn't know the Lord until the Lord shows up and speaks to him. We're going to find that out in, in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. And then in verse 23 it says, So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Husbands, underline that. Italicize that. Write it over and over again. Memorize it. Do what seems best to you. Now again, there are limits, certainly. But if you find yourself saying to your wife, do what seems best to you. Wives, good idea, bad idea. It's a great idea. Yeah. Elkanah then says, only let the Lord establish his word. Isn't that good? Let's allow God's promises and God's word to be established. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. And in verse 24 it says, Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah flower, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Now there's some debate whether the text says three bulls or a three-year-old bull, like it says in the NIV or the New American Standard. The fact that the parents bring an ephah of meal or flour, and a skin of wine, which suggests that the New King James is probably accurate, that there are three bulls, because in Numbers chapter 28, verse 12, it says that three-tenths of an ephah of grain was needed for each bull sacrifice. So if you have nine-plus-tenths of an ephah of grain, that would be the appropriate sacrifice. The point isn't whether there's one bull or three bulls. The point is that they bring what is necessary to worship the Lord. And that becomes the most important point about the passage. They bring what is necessary. And in verse 25, then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. That's interesting. Hannah brings two sacrifices to the tabernacle that day. A bull for slaughter and a son for service. There's two acts of worship. A bull for slaughter. A son for service. It's the great privilege of every mother to dedicate their children to the Lord. And so, it says she offered both with a heart full of gratitude and joy. And the reason why she does so is because God has taken her barren womb and turned it into a place of blessing. And by the way, that becomes part of the point for you. God takes sorrow, turns it into supplication. He takes barrenness and then makes blessing. And the Lord God arranged for Samuel to be a blessing to others. And look in verse 26. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I'm the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. Question. Did Eli remember? Oh, yes, I remember. You were that drunk girl from Ephraim. And I rebuked you for being a, a lush. Yeah, it was me. No, we're not told in the text. It doesn't tell us. 
But I think it's interesting. It says in verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition which I asked of him. In other words, here's her testimony. God answers prayers. By the way, it must have taken an amazing amount of faith and real courage to leave her son with Eli. (laughs) Because like I said, this guy, he isn't always, well, his spiritual dipstick is sometimes a few quarts low. And clearly, his sons aren't what we would call paragons of virtue. And I thought about that when I was a kid. I, I don't know what possessed my mother to leave me at a Christian commune. Was she nuts? What's interesting to me is that the Lord was with Samuel. And the Lord protected Samuel. And the Lord preserved Samuel from the corruption and the pollution. Now, I want you to remember what we talked about. When God wants the world to change, He sends a baby. He sends Isaac and protects him. He sends Jacob and protects him. He sends Joseph and protects him. He sends Moses and protects him. He sends Samuel. And the young man in one of the most wicked, perverse, and corrupt cultures is going to be supernaturally protected. Later, God will judge Eli and his sons. But God will prepare this child to lead a nation. And look what it says in verse 28. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. You know, we tend to believe exactly the opposite, don't we? That God has lent our children to us. Our children are on loan from God. Which is different from what Rush Limbaugh says. Remember, he says, with talent on loan from God. Do you know what? The real talent comes from God. And they worshipped him. When your home is divided, when you're filled with sorrow, pray. Sorrow that leads to supplication that leads to surrender will result in a transformation. You know, the story makes it clear that the life and the future of the nation was bound in the character and the spiritual life of the parents. You know, there's an African proverb that says, the ruin of a nation begins in the home of its people. Confucius said, the strength of a nation is derived from the integrity of its homes. Eli and his sons grew up in religious homes. But they were godless. Elkanon Hannah had a godly home that honored the Lord. Remember, it was an imperfect home. It was less than a perfect home. But she makes every effort to honor God. If this passage tells us anything, it tells us this. Never underestimate the power of the home or the power of a little child dedicated to God to transform the future. I want to close with a story. It's a story of a college professor who went to the Fiji Islands, and he was an agnostic, and he he was critical towards an elderly chief. He said, you're a great leader, but it's a pity you've been taken in by these foreign missionaries. They only want to get rich through you. No one believes the Bible anymore. People are tired of the threadbare story of Jesus dying on a cross for the sins of mankind. They know better now. 
I'm sorry you're so foolish as to accept that stupid story. The old chief's eyes flashed as he answered, See that great rock over there? On it we smash the heads of our victims. Notice the furnace that's next to it? In that oven we formerly roasted the bodies of our enemies. If it hadn't been for those good missionaries and the love of Jesus that changed us from cannibals to Christians, you wouldn't leave this place alive. You should thank the Lord for the gospel. Otherwise, you would be, what's for dinner? That's the power of a life. It isn't simply a principle. It's a person thrust into the future, changing everything. But next week, we'll start chapter 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we go from sorrow to supplication, to surrender, that, Lord, we would allow the pain and we would allow the heartache to bring us to a place where we would cry out to you that you would have your way, that you would fulfill your plan, that you would make good on your promise. That, Lord, whatever purpose we serve and, and what, whatever purpose you have for us, that, Lord, you will fulfill the purpose of our life. And you will fulfill the purpose of our children's lives. And, Lord, we pray that you would place them into a future that honors you, that glorifies you, that points people to you. Lord, we surrender to you. We worship you. The Lord Shabbat, Yahweh Shabbat, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the sovereign God who occupies eternity, who has the power to make everything that he has planned come to pass. In Jesus' name.